Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Four-year-old Michael Donahue vanished without a trace in Victoria. Three decades later, his parents aren't giving up hope. 30 years. It's been a long time. Like, me and my wife both think that we hope it never would have lasted this long, but we got to keep keep looking because we got to find our son. And it's hard, like anniversary dates, his birth dates, Christmas dinners, you know, family gatherings without Michael there. It's, it's, it's not just this day that's hard for us. It's, there's a lot of days throughout the year. And we just try to cope as best as we can. On March 24th, 30 years on, there are thousands of tips in the Michael Dennehy file. I've been researching Michael's story for the better part of a year, and I'm already beginning to relate to the investigators who worked on Michael's case over the past three decades. Too many tips, several suspects. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael, Season 3 of Island Crime. Natalie is one of the people who called the police in those early days with information she believed was relevant to the Dunahee case. Today, Natalie is in her 50s. I'm a professional woman. I'm educated. You know, I don't go looking for trouble. She still lives in Victoria. She works for a large car sales company as a manager in the finances department. Back in 1991, Natalie is a young woman out for a drive with her boyfriend. And they're arguing. Arguing about the bad road and the fate of Natalie's car. And... This is embarrassing, but I guess he wanted us to pull over and, you know, do some boyfriend-girlfriend things in the car, right? (laughs) And I wasn't having it. Here's Natalie on what happened that day and why she still thinks about it 30 years later. My boyfriend and I were out in Souk, just looking at properties together. And we stumbled across a road that was under construction. It was Gillespie Road at the time. And it was all dug up. It was all getting widened and repaved. And in the process, the road was just a horrific mess, right? And my boyfriend wanted to keep going. And I was, him and I started having an argument about my car hitting the bottom of these potholes, right, going up this hill. And when we got to the top of the hill, there was a little clear clearing area just before like a one-lane bridge on Gillespie Road. And I pulled in there. There was a brown pickup truck parked there. And I remember pulling up beside this truck and I saw a man with a little boy in the car. As soon as we pulled in, the little boy started to hide and my boyfriend and I were still arguing, right? And I'm watching, arguing with my boyfriend and looking at this guy at the same time. And then I see the boy, the little boy 
poke his head up and he's got strawberry blonde hair. The man kind of just sort of pushed him down and I thought that was kind of weird. But you know, I was in my 20s and I was still arguing with my boyfriend. And then the guy, I could see him in his side view mirror of the truck. Very ugly looking man, dark hair, and just looked hard. He just looked really hard and greasy kind of. I just thought it was strange. And then he took, he backed out of the truck, but the boy was like, he was standing on the seat, but the boy sat down. And the guy backed up and then he took off like a bat out of hell. And he was going down this road. And I said to my boyfriend, I said, there's something wrong with this. And this guy was going full steam ahead down this road and I could see that the little boy was tossed in the in the in the in the truck because the truck had a back window but no headrests it was like a a late 80s f-150 and it was dark brown I asked her to describe the driver in as much detail as she can recall guy that was with that kid didn't look like the kid's father. The, the guy had dark, dark, greasy hair. He was graying. And that little boy that was in the car had very fair skin and he was strawberry blonde. He stared at me um, in uh, his side view mirror. And I remember going, God, he's ugly, eh? Not very nice thing to say, but... <laughs> He definitely, I would almost say he was almost kind of Greek looking. Older, his hair was very salt and pepper. He was tall. He was definitely tall because his his head was high up on the back of the, because there's no headrest, right? The road is in poor shape, out in the middle of nowhere. Natalie thinks there's something off between this hard looking man and the little boy. I went, to the police and I told the police what I had seen and um, it just looked so off to me. So now we're gonna fast forward. I'm a 52 year old woman, mother, and that to this day still uh, doesn't sit well with me. So I went to the police again and I sat down with the police. I said, look, you guys just have to, I just want to get this out on the record because it's still not sitting well with me. I was watching something and it was something to do with Michael Dunahy and I saw it on the TV and it was old news footage. And the person I saw was also part of the search party. It's been 30 years. Natalie was in her car, distracted, arguing with her boyfriend. I ask how she can be so certain about the details of the memory she had from back then. Like, I have a very good long-term memory. And in my job, I have to remember people and faces. And I do do it very well. (laughs) I have one of those facial memories that very good with that. Terrible with names, but I can remember a person. And I can remember what car they bought. I don't believe in coincidences. Things happen for a reason. People always say that kind of thing. I'm not convinced either is true. But a few months into my work on Michael's case, I get a message out of the blue from a former colleague. She writes, I'm writing you because I'm wondering if there might be a time I could book a telephone call with you. It might be somewhat lengthy. 
I would appreciate an opportunity to consult with you about a story that I worked very hard on in the mid-2000s, 2006, 2007. Okay, Uh, my name is Paisley Woodward. The message was unexpected. The writer, Paisley Woodward, is a retired journalist on the West Coast. I used to work at CBC as a producer. Well, I'd say I'd worked in CBC News and Current Affairs for 30 years in Vancouver. I did end up doing a fair bit of investigative work. And Paisley also has a background in law. I worked in criminal law, um, doing defense work, and then at the Crown, and found that wasn't really bringing me joy. She and I worked in the same newsroom for decades, but we never hung out, and I'm curious as to why she's seeking me out now after all these years. Well, I knew that you were doing these series on uh, Vancouver Island crime, and um, the story bugs me. It bugs me because I had this sick feeling when I interviewed this guy the first time in particular, my heart sank. Um, just that gut feeling. And we and CBC took it really seriously. We all took it really seriously that perhaps he was very involved in the disappearance of Michael Dunahy. Paisley didn't know that I'd begun work on Missing Michael. She's recently retired from full-time journalism, but this one story is weighing on her. Or as Paisley puts it, it bugs her. It's just one of those things that has never been completed. And my interest hasn't really been particularly in a, in a, in a news story about it. That I, It's more like, if this guy really was involved, how can we move ahead with getting the evidence? That, that's my only, that was the reason why I just wanted your thoughts on it, because like, I'm not quite sure how to proceed. We talk off the record a few times. She goes through her old files and eventually agrees to an interview with me. After giving it a lot of thought, I think this is the best way, maybe, given that you're working on it, to just to see if there's any, any way we can move forward on it. Or not. You know, the police investigated this guy. They investigated him numerous times. They took it seriously and concluded, and they have ruled him out. They have ruled him out. And they, their view is that he, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, they do not think that he was involved and he's just flying the flag. You know, things change with time, right? Like, people get new perspectives, the police get fresh perspectives. You know, at the time they were saying, well, he didn't fit the profile. And he doesn't fit the profile of a pedophile, exactly. He, but he sure is a sexual offender in Technicolor, and a violent one in Technicolor. The man Paisley is describing is a dangerous offender. When she first raises his name, it's not someone I'm familiar with. A search of old news archives quickly changes that. The man we will call Mr. X is currently serving an indefinite sentence for a series of violent sexual assaults. I'm not using his name here. He has not been charged with any crime related to the Dennehy case. I ask her to back up and walk me through how she first got this tip. So it was 2005, actually. And I was 
working at CBC and I, you know, I, I did get to do what you might call investigative uh, journalism at that time. And a call had come to CBC in Saskatchewan by a guy who had been in prison with our guy. And this guy was really concerned because he'd been, he, he was released, but he was very concerned because of what he'd been told but that was saying, what he knew and had key information about the Dunahee case. And that some of this had surfaced in a group, through the course of group therapy as well. The former inmate lives in Saskatchewan. He's come forward with his information to police and media there. But eventually, his tip lands in Paisley's lap. She begins digging around. Another former inmate tells her he too believed Mr. X had information about the Dunahee case. And he told her... That, that he would carve... Uh, Michael Dunahee's name into little wooden boats that he made. So Paisley begins to research this guy. She learns about the brutal crimes he has been convicted of. He'd been videotaping him sexually brutalizing three women. And what, you know, what they saw in the videotapes, the judge in the court case said the videotapes permeated the trial like a miasma of evil. He picked up befriended marginalized women women in great distress in life, you know, addicted to alcohol or mentally ill or both, and would bring them back to his place. He, he would seem like a really nice guy. And then drug them, got them drunk, drug them, um, and then committed unspeakable acts. She manages to arrange a prison interview. And here's how she remembers him on that first meeting. The first time I met him, he looked... Um, normal. He was he's short. He was round-faced, high, bit of a high-pitched voice, bit of a twinkle in his eye, kind of friendly. It's hard to wrap my head around Paisley's description of this kind of friendly, round-faced, high-pitched man and the miasma of evil described by the sentencing judge. Mr. X tells Paisley he has a friend who abducted and murdered Michael. He tells her where it happened and where he believes Michael's remains could be found. Paisley interviews this guy four times, once on the phone and three times in person. On one of these occasions, she comes armed with maps. And so when I'd gone out, when I went out there, I took these, I went to Worldwide Book and Maps and brought old-fashioned topographical maps because that needed to be done. That's what really struck me was how at one point uh, where he was, I was showing him the, uh, you know, we were going over on the map and where things might be and he was so specific on the map, Mirror Creek and this area and and, uh, kind of located it right away and so it just seemed so clear. And he's got a really low IQ but he's just not cunning. He's not the, he's just not, it it doesn't strike me that way. Uh, He might try to be manipulative and the way it unfolded, it just, I remember my my stomach just going in somersaults. Just was eerie the way that interaction happened. We were saying this had unfolded. 
I ask how she was trying to gauge his credibility. What struck me about it is on some of the specifics, he, like on some of the things, he's really specific, and I, when I would get it wrong, he would correct me. But on other things, he would be vague. I remember the cameraman asking him, well, was he, was he wrapped in, in blankets or what was it? No, plastic. You know, kind of specific in, about certain things. He maintains his information about what has happened to Michael has been relayed to him by a friend. And his motivation in sharing what he knows? I think he had a vague idea that somehow, you know, he could, you know, it's like the Clifford Olson scenario where uh, that he would be paid to identify where the body was. By now, Paisley is feeling uncomfortable holding on to the information she has. I really wanted the Victoria Police not just to do sort of a generic interview with them, but to, uh, I felt that they should have these tapes uh, that I had of the interview. Like, this is huge, and that they should have this. It was so unusual for, for us to hand over our tapes like that, and I was really... I thought it was just really important. And so, you know, we worked with a law, de- CBC law department, and actually they uh, contracted out with an independent counsel with a criminal lawyer in Vancouver to advise me, because, like, CBC doesn't like handing over its footage to a to police department. But they were more concerned about how did I feel about that journalistically. And I just thought, this is just so important. I'm not going to, you know, like anything to solve this case. Please, let's do it. She's concerned that Mr. X could himself be involved in Michael Dunahee's case. That when he talks about a friend, he may well be talking about himself. He was never saying that he, and and to this day, you know, he isn't involved in, in this personally. He just has been given information. His story has changed about as to how he has got this information as to where this happened. Like he'll say it was his... He was a former inmate who was a friend of his, and he, then he was, for the longest time, trying to pin this on his co-accused in the miasma of evil um, trial. So, you know, at the time, it wasn't like uh, he, he was going to give me information about a friend and what his friend had told him. And uh, so it wasn't that he was going to expose himself in his mind. To be clear, this is not a small passion project worked on by a single producer. Between December of 2005 and 2007, Paisley and her colleagues invest significant time and energy into this story. A cameraman accompanies Paisley. Experts review the tapes. Another reporter is brought in. Investigative reporter Eric Rankin is involved for a time. I speak with him briefly. He tells me Paisley did most of the work, but he too believed there was something there. There is travel, two trips over to the island to go to the area Mr. X has pointed to, and eventually an interview with the subject's mother. You know, she was in a trailer park. She really was into feeding the birds uh, and feeding actually seagulls. You know, just talk to her about her son um, and what he was like. There had been some difficulties with him in life. I think that there had been some legal action between them, and I think he threatened to burn her house down at one point and stuff. But overall, she really 
think she still loved him and, and very much so I think that was the impression and she she didn't think that he what really stuck was she didn't think he was the type that could you know harm a child you know that she didn't think that he could have done the Dunahee disappearance murder she didn't think that my impression at the time was that she was minimizing his bad she was minimizing his bad behavior like she didn't really think he was a bad guy Turns out, Mr. X was already on the radar of the Victoria Police at this time. It comes up in the institution that Mr. X had information about Michael Dennehy. The police interview him, but he gives them a very different account than the one he told Paisley. And... They had done a real firm workup on him. They had told me that he was living in the Patricia Hotel in Vancouver, the downtown east side at the time. They hadn't been able to find any vehicle registered to him. They just think that he was kind of an attention seeker, you know? So that after the last time I interviewed him, which was, I think, in March of 2007, um, you know, they went off and saw him again. And they, at that point, they told him to stop talking to CBC and to recant things. And he, I remember getting a letter from him that, well, it was very, it was kind of a lawyerly, way too sophisticated kind of typed letter that he wouldn't have, weren't his words, but basically he was saying, um, you know, it's all over. And so the story gets dropped. But Paisley hangs on to her files and ensures the tapes are archived before she retires in case anything ever comes of it. I'm sure the police will say that they have really thoroughly investigated this guy and the case is in a different direction and this guy is just wasting their time and that's how they felt about it. And here's this journalist is getting sucked in by this guy or, you know. But it's like he never, he never sought me out. Never like that. The opposite. I was always having to push. I was always having to draw him out. I was always having to persuade him to to let me come talk to him. She still believes Mr. X could hold the key to what happened to Michael all those years ago. I guess I want you to know that I see it both ways. You know, like I can see it from the police's point of view. I really can. And then I got my gut, you know, and that sick feeling that I had. And what can you do? Like, we, I, I did everything I could. All I have is a gut feeling and an interview that raises questions, you know. Guts can be wrong. You know, my working theory on him, and it could be wrong, is that he has this information, he wants it out. He doesn't want to, you know, like he's, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be held responsible. But I do think that if he is responsible for Michael's disappearance, and this is um, the case, that he is saying this because in some senses he's struggling with it. He wants it. He wants, he wants the parents to know or he wants it out there, you know. And, I, I, you know, just people aren't black and white. So just because somebody has committed these unspeakable acts and has little insight you know, you just can't write every aspect of their humanity off, you know, I, I, and I don't. So in his kind of 
limited way, you know, he he wants it known. He wants it out there. He just doesn't want to. He doesn't want to take responsibility. Coming up, you'll hear from the detective who Paisley brought the file to, and from Mr. X himself. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Most of my time in journalism has been in daily news and current affairs. But island crime is different. I have no daily deadlines, no bosses. I can take the time I need. And that's a really good thing, because it takes me months to finally speak with Mr. X. The designation Dangerous Offender is reserved for Canada's most violent criminals and sexual predators, those at a high risk to commit violent or sexual offenses in the future. It means they get an automatic sentence of imprisonment for an indeterminate period. Before speaking with him, I spend some time researching how best to approach a violent sex offender like Mr. X. And I read up on his past crimes, which are horrific. Before you listen to this interview, I'd like to offer a warning to his victims. I didn't want or need to interview him about the crimes he was convicted of. But I will say when they came up, he minimized them, saying at one point he never meant to harm anyone. Our interview takes place over the phone in the fall of 2021. Hello? I can, I can barely understand what you're saying. He's disappointed. He thought I would be there in person with the TV camera crew. I can hear you, but okay. I, I was just in an interview. I asked him to tell me what he had for breakfast so I can check levels. I've been waiting for an interview, so I haven't eaten yet. <laughs> no. What strikes me immediately in those few words is that Mr. X sounds like an old man. I'm in a disabled uh, cell, double bunked. I, I got one for hip replacement on my uh, right side, so I have a hard, hard time walking. And uh, I saw the doctor about and she wanted to have wires put in around the uh, toilet so I wouldn't fall all the time. That got approved and everything about uh, four or five months ago and the bars still aren't there. He is now close to 65, and he's in poor health. I had a, a heart attack, and uh, I had a 2% chance of living. He's keen to talk about his various ailments. They, they had to put five stents in my heart, or in the valves including the Widowmaker. Oh, and he's also a pandemic conspiracy theorist. You, you're, you're in that, you, you've got access to a computer. Uh, I tried to get this out about, well, two years ago, I told my IPO to get a hold of my uh, tapes that were 
that the court uh, seized they put a 30-year hold on? It's about the virus. I'm not really interested in hearing his thoughts on COVID. He had hoped that as a former public broadcaster, I could relay his theories to the Prime Minister. I bring the conversation back down to earth, asking about his day-to-day life in prison. Well, yeah, I've got a TV, I've got a radio. I, I don't know anything about computers. Watch TV, uh, sit at the table, drink coffees. Uh, that's about it. Once I've established something of a rapport, I explain that I want to follow up on the information regarding Michael Dunahy. I wasn't there, uh, but I overheard conversations. I'd be in the living room and they were in the kitchen there talking about uh, a person or about somebody. And at that particular time, I wasn't sure if it was male or female. Well, words were being said so fast. That's why, like I said, I didn't know if it was if Michael Donahue was hearing it so fast, right? Well, because I was listening to them, well, as much as I could, listening to them fight because I was in the living room. But I would hear bits and pieces, right? Everything was supposed to be hush-hush for me. They didn't want to tell me anything. When they were talking, they weren't talking to me. They were fighting between themselves, and they were trying to keep it hush because they didn't want me to hear. They didn't talk to me about it. Like I said, there was conversations that I heard between yelling back and forth. And it was never, ever told directly to me. Now that's a totally different story than the one he told Paisley more than a decade ago. These are people who are now deceased. And again, I won't be naming them here. I know at one point he has also pointed the finger at his co-accused in the crimes he is serving time for. So his story has shifted considerably at least three times. I asked him what he told police when they spoke with him about the case. They had good cop, bad cop come in and all that kind of crap. And I had more in my mind than this, that's for sure. Well, I had nothing involved, no, no involvement in this case whatsoever. I just with the knowledge that I do know. And I also ask about the other location he described to Paisley, out near Souk. Yeah, up on uh, Souk Road. But I don't believe he, like he has mentioned that, but I don't believe that Mike Donaghy ever left the uh, property. I still believe that he's actually there, but because he, he used to drive up uh, Souk quite a bit. I'm walking a line here. I want to see if he tells me any of the details conveyed to Paisley repeatedly 15 years ago. But I don't want to ask leading questions. I wonder about those wooden boats he is alleged to have carved Michael Dunahy's initials on. So I ask him about hobbies. Yeah, but now it's a lot different doing hobbies now. I used to make the wooden parts of the boats in the shop. But I used to make the model boats in my cell. By putting all the bringing on. I made up 30 blue nose boats. Oh yeah, I, I got pictures of uh, most of the boats. And I did a three master and I took 777 strings to put up for doing all your rigging. 
I'm considering the possibility that Mr. X himself might have been involved in some way. I ask him what was going on in his life back in the early 90s. He begins by describing a close relationship with his partner at the time. And her and I were very much in love. And when we were together, I had my, uh, I started my hauling business. And she'd be with me 24 hours a day. She used to come with me on all the calls and everything. A hauling business. I used to advertise in the newspapers. And I would do cleanups and uh, garbage removals. And I had, I, I would do about seven calls per day. I was always the first one to jump and the last one to leave. Yeah, I was hauling out of Victoria. I used to have the uh, ads in the Penny Saver, uh, the Gazette, and plus the uh, Times newspaper. He talks about being in love. But his ex-wife and two former girlfriends testified about the horrific abuse they endured. At no time in my conversation with him does he express any regret for the crimes he was convicted of, nor does he share any empathy as we discuss the Dunahee case. So why does he want to talk? I wanted to start up in here for Project Closure, which was uh, inmates would tell me what problems were, and uh, I would get them uh, $20,000. There was about five or six inmates in here that uh, knew where there were bodies, but they also wanted to get money for it, and I had no funding for it. My IPO uh, kind of chased me out of it and mind my own business and all this kind of shit. So anyway, we there was a bunch of us that were walking around the track here, and then they, they started talking, and I said, you better watch what you're saying, because right now they're uh, taping up there. Years ago, BC serial killer Clifford Olson managed to arrange a $100,000 payout to his wife and child in a cash-for-bodies scheme. It seems Mr. X is proposing a similar idea. Even if I did, I wouldn't give names out. There's no money for them. And I'm not going to be killed in here for something stupid like that. They want money for it. They'll give me the information, but they want to get paid. And I'm not going to get stabbed up in here because I don't have the money to pay them. I don't think that's any closure, is it? And I don't feel like getting chased from institution to institution, that's for sure. If they give me the information, they want to get paid. And if I can't pay them, I'm in a lot of trouble in here. So, was Mr. X lying about the information he shared with Paisley? Or is he lying to me now? Or both? Retired Detective Al Cochran had conduct of the case when Mr. X is brought to the attention of the Victoria Police. He agrees to talk to me once again this time at his home. He's been retired for some time now, and he appears to be in good shape, fit and relaxed. His attractive, comfortable family home sits in a quiet cul-de-sac just outside of Victoria. The last of his kids have recently moved out. We sit down in his lovely backyard, 
accompanied by his beautiful big dog, Tuca. So he's two and a half, Bernese Mountain crossed with a full-size standard poodle. Comes in just under 120 pounds and um, can open doors. I'm a dog person, <laughs> and I could talk to Al about Tuca all day. Yeah, he taught himself. Yeah, if we leave him out, he can, he can just pop it open, or if he wants to come out, he puts it down with his chin, yep. catches it with his nose. But I'm here to talk about Mr. X. The one thing about people in prison, they have nothing but time. If they, have, if they do have access to internet, he would be someone who would really delve into that file. So I do remember um, talking to your colleague. Um, she had a lot of really detailed information. Um, we did have investigators go out and uh, interview two occasions. In the end, they discounted that it was Now, what happened about him saying that I know who did it and, mm -hmm. and it's this person, mm -hmm. I, I, I can't recall what, what that outcome was. Obviously, it, it could still be an open tip or it could be that Mr. was bored and wanted to get some activity, talk to somebody, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and thinking that he was, he'd get something out of it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I always say people who work in the correctional system, you know, police, 80% is good, 20% maybe not good that, we, that you deal with on a, but they're 100%. Mm -hmm. People that are in there have nothing but time and there's a lot of really intelligent people in there that just have nothing but time to try to manipulate you and manipulate the system. Um, and I, I, I know for sure that they discounted that had anything to do with it, but what that next, what the information is providing and who that was, if he ever did provide a name or what happened there, I, I, I don't recall. You know, his crimes are very different from abducting a child. I guess I wondered if somehow he had just heard something, a piece of information that oh. could be true. Yeah, and he's he's in a place where yeah. that could certainly <laughs> yeah. happen, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, a high concentration. So there was a lot of, like, when your colleague came forward, this was like, uh, okay, this is number one. What are we going to do? Background. And then to get people out to talk to him, and, and we did that. Al Cochran remembers that the sergeant who interviewed Mr. X discounted the possibility of his involvement. I need to ask Mr. X to explain the inconsistency in his stories to me. Things can change over time, and there may be a good reason why his story has altered. But I get only the vaguest of explanations when I speak for a second time with him. I, I guess I'm just trying to understand uh, how and why your story has evolved since the time you talked to... Uh... Because I can remember being in a car and uh, we went uh, towards uh, a past suit and uh, he made a joke on the way in the car there. And that's why I thought it was out there. So he made, he made a joke? Yeah. Like what kind, what kind of joke? He said something like he could be there or something like that. And that's what made me believe that he was there, which I think he never left the property. I, I guess I'm also trying to understand why, why, why wouldn't you have 
you know, told people back when you heard the conversation? Well, I was in relationships at the time that all this was happening, and I was more interested in my relationship than anything else. And besides, I didn't even know the person's name. We were having a session, right? And uh, I didn't know who that person was. So I said, do you know uh, anybody that's missing? And I thought it was Michelle. And uh, I said, Michael. And I didn't know it was Michael Donahue or whatever. I didn't know it was a male or a female that was missing. I, like I said, I didn't know if it was male or female. So I, I, there was no way that you could just call up the police and say, you know, I heard this because they're going to come to the house and they're going to say, well, well, I don't know nothing about it or whatever. So there was nothing to do. He has told me Michael Dennehy's name is first raised in a therapy session. I also learn the name of the woman leading that session. She too is now retired and to date has not responded to my request to speak with her. I think about the version of the story that involves a man taking Michael out towards Souk and then changing plans after being spotted while pulled over to the side of the road. Could this be the same person Natalie witnessed all those years ago? That I've asked myself this a thousand times, probably much more than that. Even if Michael hadn't been missing at the time, there was something off with the whole thing with that man and that kid. They kept asking me, is it a van, is it a van? No, it's a dark brown pickup truck. And it was like an 80, late 80s model. And when I pulled up beside it, it had the Ford on the tailgate, the Ward Ford, so I knew it was a Ford. And it had the back window and it didn't have any headrests. So, you could see quite well, like, and the little boy was just bobbing around and he had a little straw cowboy hat. You know, the one with like a, like a whistle that used to, yeah, it was with one of those. And, but the boy was fair, 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 fair. But I've reported it to the police twice. Honestly, I mean, what else can I do? Natalie's is just one of thousands of tips. And the police could be right about Mr. X simply being an attention seeker. Both are pieces of the puzzle that is missing Michael. In the episodes ahead, more suspects and a possible witness. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Donahue loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldonahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Island Crime Season 3. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. 
pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus.